What is the most difficult task you've taken on in the last week? What is the greatest challenge you've had to face in the last month? What is the one thing that you've had put on your plate in the last year? that has made you feel way in over your head. And if you wanted anyone to understand or sympathize with the unique burdens and disappointments and challenges that you've been faced with, what would you tell them? Forbes magazine wrote a somewhat comical but insightful article where they discussed what they believe are the nine toughest leadership roles you could possess. The following list is the nine roles they mentioned with some humorous but some honest pros and cons to each leadership role that you might have tagged to them. Now, just, you know, let me qualify this. Uh, These nine are not infallible. They're, They're not from God and Uh, We could certainly add our own other opinions to what these nine might be. Nonetheless, this is what Forbes thought a few years ago of what the nine toughest jobs were in leadership that you could have. A corporate CEO. And if you hold one of these tasks, you can give a hearty amen if you agree. A United States congressperson. Editor for a daily newspaper a mayor, a football coach, second in command in any organization, a university president, a stay-at-home parent. Come on. And lastly, a pastor. To clarify a little bit about the toughness of the role of a pastor, according to the author of this article, and I'd I don't know if they're a Christian or not. Here's what they pinned as a pro and con of being a pastor. He says, the pro of being a pastor is that you're seen as a man of God. And what you say gets taken seriously, at least momentarily. But a con of being a pastor. Being a pastor is like death by a thousand paper cuts says Reverend Dr. Ken Fong, senior pastor at Evergreen Baptist Church in Rosemead, California, and program director at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena. You're scrutinized and criticized from top to bottom, stem to stern. You work for an invisible, perfect boss, and you're supposed to lead a ragtag gaggle of volunteers towards God's coming future. It's like herding cats, but harder. Now, I'm not sure I would put those exact statements as a pro and con to being a pastor. However, the paradox of responses that people have towards a pastor and his ministry can tend to support, to some degree, those pros and cons from Forbes. You see, a man who has been a biblically faithful pastor for any length of time knows very well what it means to be loved and despised all in the same week. 
to being well-respected by a portion of the congregation and yet deeply misunderstood and even slandered by others, by others sitting in the same pews of that particular congregation. The Apostle Paul certainly understood this weekly paradox of how people responded to his ministry as a preacher of the gospel. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 13, or start verse 3, sorry. He says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying. And behold, we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your heart's also. So as you can see, the Apostle Paul was no stranger to what it meant to be loved and despised all at the same time by the people he ministered to. He and his colorful and diverse ministry team would embark on several missionary journeys, and they would see a strange mixture of responses from the people they ministered to, time in time again. You know, in fact, if you read through the book of Acts, it wasn't merely the pagan communities that threatened his well-being. It's not just the idol worshipers that brought hardships into his life. It wasn't even just the unbelieving Jews who would push him out of the synagogue because they rejected his message about the Messiah. Sometimes the dagger went into the heart And sometimes even his back from people he thought he could trust. Do you remember Demas in the New Testament? We read in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. No, just like many of us who have known what it's like for even close friends to disagree with us and then separate from us. Paul did too. In Acts chapter 15, we read about how Paul and Barnabas were, they were tight friends. They were a tag team in ministry until 
a sharp disagreement arose between them over a ministry personnel decision, almost like a hiring situation over John Mark, whether or not he should go on the mission trip or not. It was such a divisive conversation that Barnabas and Paul would never serve together again in the same capacity. And similar to our Lord, Paul knew what it meant for good friends in the ministry to cowardly bow out and leave him when the going got tough to stand with him for the truth. 2 Timothy 4, verses 14 to 16. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Now, let me be a little honest with you. There are many of men, they're hucksters, they're hoax, they're charlatans, they're false prophets, and they're little boys that use the local church as a stepping stone for their ministry career. In other words, they were mama called, daddy called, but not God called. They had no business ever going to seminary. They had no business ever taking a pulpit. They are disqualified. They are not a gift to Christ's church. And sadly, because of poor teaching, churches hire these men. And that's what they get for a pastor for many years until that man is possibly found out. You see, there are men that will use the ministry to boost their ego but they really don't care about the sheep. They care about their image. They care about how successful they are amongst their colleagues. And he might even be a good preacher, might even be a good speaker. But any genuine Christian that has any level of discernment, if you sit under that kind of ministry, in time you will pick up the cold-heartedness and the disconnect that he has with the people. But if a man understands that gospel ministry is about serving people for their eternal good and their joy in Jesus and not about using people for selfish gain, he'll view people in his church like a family. Like a family. As an intimate brotherhood and not a transactional business venture. A close and intimate bond will develop between the pastor's heart and the hearts of those he ministers to, those God saves and transforms through his ministry, through his preaching, through his prayers, through his shepherding care. The Holy Spirit gives such an intimate bond between a faithful pastor and a congregation who loves their pastor. That on the day he dies, he might even see his church closer to him than his own biological family. In fact, Paul modeled this so well, didn't he? Paul had young men in the ministry. His internship, his future elder body, that he mentored and he viewed them as a beloved child in the faith. Remember Timothy and Titus? He didn't call him an employee or a, kind of a widget guy, or whatever the terms would be of just do this, do that. 
No, he was like a child to him. And yet, some of the churches that Paul planted with his own hands, like the Corinthian church, where many came to faith through his ministry, had congregants that were falling away from the truth. They began to distrust Paul. They began to be suspicious of Paul. They began to question his teaching. But they had no real concrete evidence. There was no real reason for them to put up that kind of wall against him. And instead of benefiting from his sound teaching, they were listening to false teachers and yoking their lives with unbelievers running around in the church masquerading as Christians. False converts roaming around Jesus' church wreaking havoc and undermining biblical authority. Friends, a little leaven can leaven the whole lump. So when you read books of the New Testament, like 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you have to read Paul's corrections, his rebukes, through the lens of a man who cared for these people. Listen, Paul gave off the sweet-smelling aroma of what a good pastor smells like. He cares for his people's spiritual growth more than they do. That's the kind of men you want shepherding your church. That's the kind of man I desire and aspire to be more and more. Pray for me and pray for the future elders of this church to care more about your spiritual growth, your godliness, than even you do. That's why Paul, in the book of Galatians, used such intimate and agonizing language to express his pain when he heard dear believers listening to false teaching, leading some in their congregations to abandon the gospel. You remember Galatians chapter 1? It's the only letter in the New Testament Paul writes that he basically starts off with a strong warning instead of an encouragement. Galatians 1 Starting in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, Let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Friends, Galatians 1 is the bear hug of turf love. Sometimes the greatest form of love we could ever receive is tough love. Tough love. Whether we are giving that tough love or receiving that tough love, we should nonetheless see it as God's love. And God's wisdom working through that tough love. If you want to 
read more about this idea of tough love actually coming from the very heart of God, read Matthew chapter 18 and Hebrews chapter 12. You see, tough love says something like this. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. You're wrong. You're in sin. This is what God's word says. And this is why I'm bringing this to you. I love you. And I plead with you to think and reflect more upon what you've done. Recognize where you've gone astray and obey the Lord. God's patience and mercy in Christ is extended towards you. That should lead you to repentance and find forgiveness and restoration in our gracious God. Listen, if you're here today and you know a brother and sister in Christ who is either living in sin or at the very least, they're just making foolish decisions with their life. They're just doing things that just make you want to go, stop that. Come on. Got to kind of rope them back in and say, no, 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 no. That's a foolish decision, brother. That's a foolish decision, sister. Friends, if you have someone that comes to your mind right now, I'd encourage you to stop suppressing that thought and pray for them. Stop trying to push it out of your mind. God's bringing that person up on purpose. You see, God loves people more than you and I do. And if he brings someone to mind, you need to take that serious. Take that name to the throne of grace. God might use you as an instrument for that person's spiritual and eternal good. Friends, ask God to give you wisdom. Often we don't know what to do and what to say. So ask God for wisdom. Ask God to give you courage. Courage to say what needs to be said Because you care more about what God thinks than what your friend may or may not think in your answer. You see, friends, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. 1 Corinthians 13, 6. We are all called in the body of Christ, not just the pastor, not just the Sunday school teacher, but every single one of us are called to speak the truth in what? In love, Ephesians 4.15. Friends, I think one of the reasons we're so afraid to deliver tough love to others is because we simply suffer from being paralyzed with being conflict avoidant. Avoid difficult conversations at all cost. Friends, if you are someone who struggles with being conflict avoidant, when you know you should deal with something, I want to gently reprove you, as I have been reproved hundreds of times, that that's just pride. That's just pride. You're afraid because you are falling prey to self-preservation. You don't want to get anything messy. You don't want to do anything that might cost you some social capital, so you stay quiet and do nothing. But friends, that's just pride masquerading as love. Love is gentle and love is kind. But friends, love speaks what is true. Love speaks what is necessary for that person's sanctification. And love, friends, the most loving thing you and I could ever do is first love God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We should care about what God thinks about the matter. And he tells us in his word. So friends, if you are struggling with the fear of man, 
avoidant conflict, confess it to the Lord, and remember what he thinks and what he says matters a whole lot more than what that other person thinks or what that other person says. And may we all be encouraged by this word on tough love from Paul David Tripp. The goal of confrontation is not punishment or intimidation, but revelation. We should want others to see their sin and the beauty of God's way, not feel crushed by what they just heard. You see, like any loving pastor or a loving mom or dad who genuinely loves Christ's church, they're going to speak words of comfort to them and tough love to them. Friends, even Paul had the audacity to describe his agonizing tough love in his soul like the pain of a woman in labor. Now, I would never even try to pretend I know what it's like to deliver a baby. Any, I mean, just men, here's some marriage advice. Never tell your wife, I know what you're going through. No, you and I will never understand. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, did say in Galatians 4.19, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Friends, that's the heart of a man who loves Christ's church. Well, friends, that long introduction is basically to let you know we're in the second and final little mini sermon series on caring for one another. Last week, we looked at John 13 as a framework, the church covenant, what it means for members to care for one another. If you weren't here or you didn't get to listen to it, Check it out. It'll make more sense for today's message. But this morning, we're going to kind of cap it off with considering how church members care for their pastors. Uh, Now, oddly enough, uh, most people have never considered a topic like that because pastors are often seen as the professionals who care for the church, right? It's kind of like a doctor. Everyone looks at the doctor as kind of the miracle worker but forgets that they get sick too. (laughs) They need to go to the doctor too. Well, Your pastor, as much as I want to shepherd you, needs to be shepherded as well. And so if I don't teach you, if I don't show you in Scripture, well, probably nobody will. And so that's our goal this morning. As we think about your present pastor, your future pastors, and pastors around the River Valley that you may be friends with, I hope it would be an encouragement to you so that you can encourage them. If you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you're using the chair Bibles provided, that's page 574. 574. As you're turning there, this is a topical message. Again, using this as a foundation and a framework. We'll look a little deeper, though, than last week's John 13. And I think it's a scripture that can be easily overlooked and misunderstood And I want to take an opportunity for us at CCBC to look afresh at the tremendous opportunity and vital responsibility of members caring for their pastors, and hopefully pastors, again, that you know even around the country. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. 
be at peace among yourselves. This is God's word. Last week, I gave us a few questions to consider. Basically, I'm going to use the same question framework to kind of keep it simple for us with the aim at caring for pastors. Three questions we'll consider today. Number one, what does it mean to care for the pastors of Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church? Number two, how should church members care for their pastors? Number three, why should church members care for their pastors? Kind of what, how, and why? The first one will take the longest, the last two will be much quicker. Number one, what does it mean to care for the pastors of Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church? To care for your pastors, you must know the work of a pastor, know the heart of a pastor, and know some of the challenges a pastor faces. Let's look at that first one. Know the work of a pastor. Look with me again at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. The Apostle Paul writes, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now you'll notice, if, if you paid attention to that first reading and second reading, there's no mention of pastor or elder in the text. However, though the office of a pastor or elder is not in the text, the function, the role, or the work of a pastor is. You'll see the Apostle Paul describe that some believers, not all, some believers among them of the Thessalonian Christians are those who labor among you, did you see that phrase? And are over you in the Lord. Uh, The Greek word here for over you is prohostomai, and it means to stand before like a leader standing before a troop of soldiers. It means to preside over something, like a director or a supervisor. Uh, The idea here is to maintain order and peace, to rule over or to be over a household or a church. In fact, there's a handful of times in the New Testament this word is used, and twice it is in reference to the office and the work of a pastor or an overseer or an elder. Those words are all used interchangeably. I want to direct you to two places. Turn back in your Bible, or turn forward in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is not on the screen. 1 Timothy chapter 3, just one or two books over. I want to show you the two places proostomai is used so you can see what Paul's understanding is in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Timothy chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 1 to 5, and then I want you to focus in on verses 4 and 5. 1 Timothy 3, starting verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or pastor or elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must proostomai or manage or rule or be over. There's the word again. His own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to proostomai or manage or rule or be over his own household, How will he care for God's church? 
That means one of the qualifications of a man to serve in God's church as an elder is that he must possess a proven pattern of managing or ruling over his home in a respectable way. So if the man's married, he's got a wife and children, those would be the ones he's got primary oversight with. That means to be an elder, you have to possess some level of leadership and oversight capabilities. And the testing ground, most naturally, are the people who live the closest to him in his home, his biological family that still lives under his roof. That's, that's the God-given authority of a husband and a father, but also the qualification of an elder. That means a pastor's first and most important ministry is not the church, but his home. The first and most important ministry for a pastor is not the church, but his home. Friends, that means the local church should see that a man cares more about his family oftentimes than he will you. Because that's the testing grounds of his first church. That's his first ministry. That means a local church, if they want to really love their pastor well, will be for supporting his family and help him stay focused on what's firstly important. I know pastors that get literally pulled away from their families so much that the local church is basically a mistress. It's like a second wife. It's like another mom for the man. And friends, that's, that's not biblical. And so if, if, if we ever get to a place where you see me drifting in my devotion to my family in some obvious, consistent way. I mean, there's going to be busy times in ministry. I want you to pray for me, and I want you in love to to check me because my first ministry is always my family, and that would be any future elder. And that means if you are aspiring to be an elder or you're praying through that or you're thinking, ah, I'm not sure if I would ever be, but I've, I've got more interest than I used to, the first place you need to look is your home. How are you doing in your relationship to your wife and your children? And ask her, how am I doing managing this household? Just lay it to me, sweetheart. Tough love can sometimes be a really good thing if you want to grow up as a husband and a father. Go over to 1 Timothy 5. <clears throat> Two chapters over, 1 Timothy 5 is where the other time prohostomai is used. <clears throat> 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18. Let the elders who prohostomai or who rule well, manage, be over, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Here Paul is now instructing Timothy on how the church is to financially compensate for the man or the group of men shepherding the church when they're serving as elders. I've already taught more extensively on this earlier this year. If you want to learn more about how I taught through this, you can look at other sermons on our podcast. But the basic point is this, that a man who's an elder managing and ruling over Christ's church in a fruitful and faithful way, and it's very evident from the church, from the church's affirmation, he's gifted to do it. He should be set apart by the church financially. In the New Testament, A church typically models the example of having a plurality of elders. 
That means usually more than one. But ordinarily, not all elders will be paid for by the church. They're not going to be supported by the church. Some will serve as what you call lay elders. That means they're members of the congregation who are qualified, according to 1 Timothy 3, but they are supported financially. They make money. They draw income from a different job. They come alongside the lead pastor and other maybe staff pastors to shepherd the flock. And usually the man or group of men who are the most gifted in preaching and teaching, that's why verse 17 says preaching and teaching, they should be the men that the church supports financially. I'm thankful here for our church here at CCBC. What an amazing privilege it is to know in just the first year of being a church plant in a bizarre set of circumstances that I've been set apart full-time to be a pastor. Listen, I know what it's like to be a bivocational pastor. I know what it's like to work 55-hour, 60-hour weeks doing sermon prep at 4.30 in the morning and waxing floors till 2 in the morning. I have sympathy and great uh, appreciation for brothers who have to have two jobs because their church can't financially care for them. So, friends, I want to say on behalf of Julie, my children, and especially me, that you are taking care of us so that I can focus on one task, and that is shepherding this flock. So thank you. And my wife, who's serving in childcare right now, says thank you as well. So go back to 1 Thessalonians 5. So it's clear prohostomai is, is really interconnected with a man serving as an elder, and that's, that's what Paul is admonishing here. He's alluding to the men who are serving as elders or pastors amongst the Thessalonians. You see Paul and Silas and, and Timothy, they had gone into Thessalonica. They had planted a church. They were shepherding that flock. But then they had to leave. They got other places to go. They got other churches to plant. And behind them, though, were men that were raised up to shepherd these churches to help these dear saints continue to grow. So in summary, what is the work of a pastor? They lead and teach God's people with God's word. And they protect and pray for God's people as they set a godly example for others to imitate. Number two, know the heart of a pastor. Know the heart of a pastor. Again, look at verse 12 closely. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Now, in the Lord, there is the key text. In one sense, Paul is saying this is the spiritual nature of the work. And that means that the man's heart has to be focused on that type of work. It's a noble work, he says elsewhere. And that means the heart of a pastor, in order to give himself to this task in a way that pleases God, must be motivated first by the love and grace of God in his own life. One of the most practical ways you can pray for me and the future elders is that we would never get over how the Lord saved us how the Lord rescued us, that we would lead out in congregational worship, that we of all people would be the most broken over our sin, that we of all people would realize that we are insufficient for these things. Pray that the pastors never lose that first love because that will be what we operate out of in serving you. Also in the Lord indicates the the nature and role of this in the life of the church. Uh, Friends, a pastor, if he's going to understand his role right, he's a shepherd. He's among the sheep. A good pastor will smell like his sheep. He's not a power-hungry and pragmatic CEO. 
He's not a tyrant or a taskmaster. He's a servant leader like his Lord Jesus Christ. Before Christ would go to the cross and then rise from the dead, be seated at the right hand of the Father, all authority being given to him in heaven and on earth, he was first washing his disciples' feet. Our Lord stooped low, the leader, to serve those who were under his care. In the Lord also means, and this is where I tremble, this is the Lord's church. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's Christ's church. We're Christ's kids. Those who lead Christ's church should understand that one day the master is coming back to his household and he's going to give an account for all the stewards of his household. And namely, he's going to call the pastors to the carpet. Friends, the scriptures are clear. If you don't know how unbelievably important this is to the heart of God, listen to these texts. James 3 verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with what? Greater. 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 Strictness. You know why? My stomach, I feel like I've got like a punch in the gut, burden on my back, because James 3.1 tells me a greater judgment's coming. Hebrews 13, Brother Allen read earlier. Oftentimes, heavy-handed pastors think only about submit and obey your leaders, and they don't forget the next phrase. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Friends, that's why the heart of a pastor must realize that it's the heart of God that he's trying to please. It's his church, it's his sheep, it's his gospel, it's his book. Pray that the elders of this church including the lead pastor, would have the heart of God for his people. Friends, you know what brings joy to a pastor? Joy to a pastor's heart? It's not discounts at coffee shops. It's not free food at a local Baptist association. The joy of a pastor is watching Christ's people love Jesus more. The joy of a pastor is seeing God's kids grow up. The joy of a pastor is watching hurting marriages experience healing and repentance, seeing the sexually immoral pursue holiness, observing the lazy become diligent and hardworking, seeing the timid and fearful become courageous and obedient, the quick-tempered becoming patient, the passive husband becoming strong and sacrificial towards his wife, the quarrelsome wife becoming gentle and respectful towards her husband, the discouraged sister remembering God's promises to cheer her up, the bitter young man who forgives his father because of Christ's forgiveness to him, the kids in the children's ministry shouting with excitement when they're singing with us on the Lord's Day, the widow who is cared for by other members checking in on her. Friends, the joy of God's people is the joy of the heart of the pastor. That's what brings a man like me great joy. I care very little anymore about how many people like my preaching. Very little. 
I care way more about you growing in Jesus. I care way more about you leading your families, how to disciple your families. My heart and my goal is that you will depend on me less the longer I shepherd you. Because you see that I'm just a man. I can be replaced like that. But Jesus, you got Jesus for eternity. Friends, that is God's will for his church. Oh, friends, 3 John 4, that's my heart. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Oh, that's my heart for you. That's what I think about when I wake up at 3 in the morning. I hope they're looking to Jesus. When I get up so early and I don't feel like preaching again, I get up because Christ's kids are here. You're worth it. You're worth the slander I've endured. You're worth the persecution I've endured. You're worth the humiliation that me and my family have endured. You're worth it because Christ died for you. And you should know that. And I'm proud of you. I'm really proud of you. I'm proud that you're a member of this body. I'm proud when I'm seeing believers greet one another and embrace one another and linger after the service for an hour. I love it. I love to hear you sing. I love it. Friends, it gives me great joy to see your joy in Jesus go up. In my heart, beloved, it, it breaks when you suffer. It breaks when I hear the troubles that you're enduring. And death, and sickness, difficulties in your home life, depression, anxiety. It hurts me too. And it's a privilege to share that burden with you. Friends, did you see that last phrase in Hebrews 13, 17? Where the writer gives the motivation for submitting under and following the leadership of faithful pastors. He says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. Friends, every job on the planet, every role we have in our family lives, we all have ups and downs and pros and cons and things we like and things we don't like. And, and being a pastor is very much like that too. There are good days and there's really bad days. There's days that I go, wow, I don't want to do anything else. And there's days going, Lord, give me a vision, give me a door, I'm done. I feel the same ups and downs as you do. Friends, I love you. I thank God for you. Continue to pray for me, my wife, and the future leaders of this church because if we serve with joy, it's of great advantage to you. Number three, know some of the challenges a pastor faces. Know some of the challenges a pastor faces. Did you notice in verse 12, these men are to admonish the saints. That's what they're called to do. This word can have an all-encompassing aspect to it, teaching, correcting, and counseling. And in one sense, all Christians are called to admonish one another. Colossians 3.16, right? It's not just the pastor's job. It's not a professional's job. All Christians are to teach and warn and counsel each other. But friends, this is really what a pastor does week in and week out. From the pulpit, to the classroom, to the lunch hour, to the phone calls. The leaders speak the word of God to God's people and help them apply it to their lives. Uh, have you ever tried to teach your ch child how to ride a bike? You know, you got to start somewhere, right? There's training wheels, there's bloody, scabbed up knees, there's crying, but eventually 
Those training wheels aren't needed anymore. Man, they're just going, going. And then they fall again. But they get back up again. And eventually, man, they're getting on a road bike. And then they want to push it out and get a really nice bike. And now they're, they're doing marathons and triathlons. Friends, growing as a Christian is the same way. We all start off with some training wheels. But it's a pastor's job description to help you get those training wheels off so that you can help others ride their bikes too. Friends, that's why pastors are called to be patient with Christ's sheep. Churches are not businesses. They're not programs. They're not athletic teams. They're called to be patient even with the weakest of the sheep. Because even a weak and stubborn sheep is still sheep. And he's Christ's sheep. She's Christ's sheep. That's Christ's people. And if Christ died for them, well, we can be patient as Christ has been patient with us. And that's why the work of a pastor is not for the faint of heart. It's hard work. That's what the word labor there is in the original language, to work to the point of exhaustion, mental exhaustion, emotional exhaustion, sometimes even physical exhaustion. And I would say this, if you're a young man thinking about the ministry, or you're in a midlife and you're thinking about it as well, if you suffer from commitment phobia, that means you quit at the first sight of suffering or affliction, you're not going to last very long as an elder. It is not for the faint of heart. And if you are paralyzed by people-pleasing and the fear of man, you're also not going to last very long as an elder. You're going to have to learn how to fear God really quick, especially when the going gets tough. But friends, there's two things about being a pastor, if I could say anything for you to kind of remember. Number one, it's the most rewarding task, I believe, on this side of heaven that can be given to any fallen creature. What a lofty call. What an amazing privilege. First Peter says, there is an imperishable crown awaiting faithful elders. It's a privilege to preach and teach God's word. I get paid to study God and help us behold him. What a sweet opportunity. And yet, friends, pastoring is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, apart from being a husband and a father that I'm called to be. Friends, pray for your pastor. Pray for other pastors around the country. We need your prayers. Number two, big number two question, how should church members care for their pastors? How should church members care for their pastors? Look again at verse 12. He says, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love. Now notice what he says though. He doesn't say esteem them very highly in love because of their personality or by how they dress or by how nice they are to you. He says, esteem them highly in love because of their what? Say it louder. Work. The Greek word here translated respect in the ESV has a broader connotation to it. It can mean appreciate, recognize, be considerate, or pay attention to. The idea Paul is saying, Thessalonian Christians, do not overlook or take for granted the men who serve you as pastors. Don't look past them. Don't forget them. John Piper once said, I was asked the question, 
Dr. Piper, you've got like millions of people that read your books and go to your conferences. And man, I wonder what it's like at your church. And he just laughed. He said, yeah, after about 10 years of pastoring the same church, you just kind of blend in with the furniture. You're just kind of like used furniture. People aren't all that impressive with you anymore because they get to see who you really are. You're just another man. You're just another guy looking to Jesus. And friends, I think that's a good thing to always be reminded of. Number one, never overlook or take for granted the pastors God gives you. but Also, don't idolize them. They're not celebrities. They're just servants like the rest of us. Now, instead of giving you like a thousand ways that I think you can encourage pastors, this past week, and I'm not going to read them all. I can send an email to you because we're towards the end here. I sent out a survey. That way I can hide and uh, not think I came up with this, to pastors around the world, to as far as Dubai, all the way to Arkansas. And I asked them, what are ways that the members of your church love you, show they care, and try to obey 1 Thessalonians, highly esteem you for your work's sake? Here's what they said. A pastor in Virginia, pray for me. Give specific encouragements about preaching and pastoring. Be a peacemaker with other members. Receive the word with eagerness. Evangelize like crazy and help others do the same. A pastor in Turkey. I don't mean the thing you eat once a year. A place a long ways from here. Watching my kids, having us over for dinner, making a meal for us, writing an encouraging note. A pastor in Alabama. Communicating support for my ministry, even in light of all my shortcomings. Emails, text messages about how God uses my preaching, loving my family well. A pastor in Indiana, prayer, personal relationships, financial support, time off, ongoing education. Pastor in Iowa, sharing how they're growing in Christ, asking for help and counsel from God's word when they're struggling, notes of encouragement when I'm feeling discouraged, regularly attending church on the Lord's Day. Pastor in South Carolina, they pray for me. They love my family. One brother asks me literally every week, how am I doing? They encourage me when they are pursuing the Lord and each other. Pastor in Virginia, praying for me and my family. Verbal encouragements, written encouragements. Not expecting my family and myself to be out every night with the church. Hold me accountable for the kind of husband I am. And provide a sabbatical for me to have extended time to read, reflect, and rest. Pastor in South Africa, loving on my family giving me a sabbatical, notes of encouragement, forgiving me when I mess up. There's plenty of opportunities. Providing well for me and my family. Some of these other guys were longer responses. We're skipping those. Pastor in Texas, encouragement about usefulness of my teaching. Uh, Financial gifts in small ways to encourage my wife. Supporting our time away. Pastor in Illinois, just being at church every Sunday. Specific feedback on the sermon beyond just good sermon, brother. Cards, sabbatical, a pastor in Washington, D.C., not Mark Dever, for those of you who are wondering, offering trustworthy friendship without fear of gossip about my weaknesses or sins, initiate to spend time with me face-to-face, uh, show up in times to the Bible study punctually and ready to learn. That's funny. Um, yeah, I'm just going to keep, keep on trucking here because some of these are a little long. A uh, pastor in Arkansas. I want them to love the word more than me who brings the word. That's my most important desire. 
support me and my family financially so I can give myself to the work, give me a sabbatical, recognize the plurality of elders, don't burden the senior pastor to be at every bedside and hospital, pray regularly for the elders and attend services faithfully. I've got pastors in, in Ohio, Texas, Michigan, Minnesota, again, Dubai, China, I mean, all over the place. I can send this to you. It's just the same thing over and over and over again. I've given you a summary on the screen. Pray for pastors. Love on their families. Give them adequate pay and time, a way to rest. Treat them just as a member of the church. That was actually a more surprising one that I'm glad these brothers said. Don't treat me like a superhero or like, you know, someone that's trying to get in on the same place as Jesus. Like, I'm just another member. I'm just another servant. I thought that was really cool. Um, yeah, so there's a bunch of them in here. I will send that to you. Share what God has done through their ministry. Uh, two books I would encourage you to uh, get, The Pastor's Soul uh, by Brian Croft. Jansen, do you remember the other author? It's kind of a weird last name. Okay, well, you can get with me. I've got two books, The Dangerous Calling and The Pastor's Soul. Those two, two books would be useful if you want to learn more how to do this. Lastly, number three as we close, Why? Why should church members care for their pastors? Now, friends, I'm, I'm obviously aware that I'm, I'm a pastor. This could come off super self-serving. I mean, how many of you, if you gathered your family around the dinner table tonight and said, hi, give me 70 minutes of your time to tell you all the ways I want you to support me? Yeah, you're going to be locked up in a room for a while. I just wouldn't encourage you to do that. I understand the danger it can be for me to preach a sermon that in some ways is about the role I have. But friends, if God's word commands it, and I've been a member of a church longer than I was a pastor, well, friends, then God wants God's people to know how to care for their pastor. It's going to benefit you. His joy increases. He shepherds you better. When he's suffering, he needs your comfort. When he's discouraged, he needs your encouragement. When he's afraid, he needs your help to pray for boldness. The body cares for each other. I'm not the head of nothing. Jesus is the head of the church. I'm just the blabbering mouthpiece that tries to do a decent job. I need the same care you do. And I've got a whole list of ways that you, you can do that if you get to know me, and I'll be happy to share. Why should you care for pastors? Number one, faithful pastors are gifts to Christ's church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Friends, if you look at your life, I'm sure moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, and friends you met in high school and college have been greatly used to help you. But I think if we're all honest, if we've ever been a member of a local church that preached the gospel, God has used at least one pastor in your life in some way. Friends, Pastors, with all their imperfections, are still Christ's gift to his church. That's what Ephesians 4 says. It's his gift to the body. He gifts them for it. He equips them to bless and serve his church. Number two, even the best of pastors are still sheep like you, and they need care just like you. Friends, there are no perfect churches to join, and there are no perfect pastors who shepherd them. When members don't care for each other 
And when pastors don't care for the sheep, friends, we all need to be reminded that Jesus Christ is our good shepherd. Jesus Christ is our overseer of our souls. He is the shepherd of the sheep who has purchased with his own blood the better promises of the new covenant. You see, we all like sheep, from the pastor to the member, have gone astray, each to our own way. And the Lord has laid our iniquity on the shoulders of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. In meekness, he was led to the slaughter like a sheep who did not open his mouth. Though he was reviled and slandered, he did not revile in return. He was treated unjustly, betrayed by his friends, betrayed by his own disciples, and he went to the cross for our sake. The writer of Hebrews says that he endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. Jesus' love for the sheep and the joy that they would experience by being reconciled to God was what helped Jesus endure the cross. Christ's joy for the glory of his Father. Christ's joy for the redemption of his bride. He died on that cross as a punishment for our sins. And he rose from the dead. And if we turn from our sins and trust in him, we get a taste of the joy of being shepherded and cared for by the good shepherd. Because when Pastor Blake fails you, Jesus won't. When the future elders fail you, Jesus won't. He cares for his sheep. Number three, and lastly, a healthy church will have faithful pastors who care for the sheep and caring sheep who protect the unity of Christ's church. Did you notice verse 13, that last phrase? It's not a throwaway. It's a great way to end a message. It's a great way to end a topical series on care. Be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace. Be at peace with your pastors. Be at peace with one another as church members. If you have a problem with a pastor or an elder, you need to decide whether to overlook that offense and move on or in love have a conversation with that pastor or that elder. It is loving for you to come speak to your pastor if you feel like he's in sin or he made a foolish decision. There's a way to do it that's disrespectful and inappropriate, and there's a way that can be done in love. A friend, that's one of the ways you help me grow as a Christian. Because I'm a member and I'm a Christian first. I'm not a pastor first. I'm a Christian just like you. That's why in our church covenant, we pledge together to highly esteem and love those who labor among us as elders because of their noble work, by supporting them and praying for them, while also welcoming and testing their instruction by the authority of the Scriptures. Friends, that's why we have to realize this is a family. A pastor's heart for his people is like a family. His people's heart for him is like a family. And families get messy, don't they? And churches aren't exempt either. But when we love each other and we care for each other, we work together through difficult times for the sake of peace. We give tough love. We receive tough love for the sake of peace. And friends, if you're ever here and you just realize you can't trust the leadership of CCBC any longer, for whatever reason, 
There's another church you can join where you can trust those elders. You can obey Hebrews 13, 17 with a clear conscience. You can be at peace with those elders. Friends, go join that church. This is not the only restaurant in town. We're just one flock. We want other churches to prosper. We want other pastors to do well. And so, friends, think about that carefully. What did Paul say? We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you don't leave us to try to figure out the Christian life alone. That you give us a body to care for each other. A body made up of different members, with different gifts, different roles. Lord, I pray as their pastor, I pray that you give me wisdom on how to care for your children for Christ's people. Lord, I pray you would raise up godly elders, that this church would be well cared for and shepherded and equipped for the battle. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that gives tough love and receives tough love, and we do it in a way that honors you and blesses your church. And Lord, again, I pray for CCBC that we would be a church where hurting pastors and hurting church members can find healing and rest. And Lord, when we all fall short, and we don't imitate Christ as we ought, Lord, remind each one of us we have a good shepherd in Christ who will never leave us nor forsake us. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.